It has been said that the highest study of mankind is to study man. And I was thinking, as there's a lot of truth to that, what is equally true, if not more, is that the proper study of man is of God. So to understand the deeds of man, we have to look to God. The pleasures of humanity, we look to God. What is good for man, what is wrong for man, the life of man, the death of man, the sin of man, the redemption of man, we are to look to God, we are to know about God. It's like C.S. Lewis's wildly, wildly famous quote where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. See, it's through, it's through the scope of God that we see everything, like Lewis said, with, with clarity, we see it with purpose, and we see it with reason. We see everything, even to say the study of such heavy demons which haunt so many of us like death or fear or hypocrisy or lies and deceit are that much clearer and weightier when God is known or understood. We would say that is true for those who don't follow Jesus and for those who do. J.I. Packer, a beast of a theologian and pastor, says this for Christians on the subject. It was the highest science the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of our great God. So, perhaps you heard me read those verses and you're wondering, cool, what does any of this have to do? Why start a talk off on Acts 5 like this? with the idea that to understand the good and the bad and the ugly of life, why start it off like this? Because if we want to understand the good, the bad, and the ugly of life, I would say we need to understand God. We need to understand God because if we don't, hear me, if we don't, then Acts 5, this true story, this narrative is way more grim than one of goodness. Because today's verses have been identified, and hear me on this, they have been identified by many commentators and theologians as the most vivid story in all of Acts. And this is one of the most top glaring accounts in all of the New Testament. And maybe it's safe to assume that perhaps this week as you read it in your Bible reading plan, you were shocked or you know, hot and bothered or grossed out. I mean, even tonight, those present who are frustrated with the God of the Bible, isn't this maybe where your gut wants to scream out and go, see, see, where is your God of love? Maybe if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, isn't this where you say, why would I follow your God who does something like this? So I would say tonight, could it be that our shock and our discomfort with these verses is exactly what the author and what the Holy Spirit, one who inspired these words, wanted. For us to be bothered, for us to be reminded, for us to be aware, and for us to be in awe. Because to try to make sense of Acts 5, it's imperative that we start with God. You see, the proper study of death and sin and dishonesty and greed and pride is to study and know God. Even more so tonight because, as it were, you know, may it seem Ananias and Sapphira are the main characters. To be honest, that is shallow 
logic with these verses. God, more than any other individual mentioned in these verses, is wildly, wildly the main character of tonight's drama. And don't get me wrong, Ananias and Sapphira are integral. Even Satan is in tonight's act, but God is paramount. Now, if this is your first time here, I could see how this might feel like you are walking in on the middle of a movie, or if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're walking up, you know, people who are in mid-conversation. Basically, what in the world is happening? Who's Peter? Who are these people? What are they doing? Let me fill you in briefly. Jesus has, remember if you guys remember, risen from the dead, and he has commissioned his followers to go out and to get busy. You remember? To make disciples, to baptize, and to teach all things good news. And this has started the entire Christian movement. So started with a handful of men and women, the most unqualified, unattractive, uneducated people you'd probably ever expect. I mean, this isn't like Ocean's Eleven style where they got like the best of the best. There's nobody slick or high gloss in any of these situations or these narratives. Jesus scraped the bottom of the bucket and placed them as the core group of that church, the core group of the Christian movement, which should only, I hope, inspires us. So then God, the Holy Spirit, comes in Acts 2. He fills those who follow Jesus with power and strength to actually carry out the objective they've been given. Thus, life in community and relationships, life on mission and trying to make a difference. Um, Even for us today as a community on the West Side, following Jesus and seeking to reach, teach, and equip others to do the same means a life filled with the Holy Spirit. And from there, we see the ignition of the church, the community of God's people has been started. And we see these small handful of Goonies, wonderfully and powerfully go from 12 to 120 to 3,000 to 5,000, which really means 15,000, which really means 20,000. And for those who tried to stomp Jesus out, this is obviously quite unnerving. For those who tried to stop this Jesus freak movement, this is bothersome. This wasn't what was supposed to happen after you executed Christ. So as the first church grows, the officials tell the church in Acts 3, if you guys remember, stop it or else. Which then was only like giving a toddler a five-hour energy milkshake because all it did was give the church energy and mobility and fuel and fire to only preach and teach and live for Jesus that much more. All of this resulting in a community of people as we saw last week. If you guys remember last week, all of this resulting in a community of people with one heart and one soul having all things in common, being generous with their finances and their land and their property, caring for one another to the point where nobody had need. And then, Acts chapter 5. Essentially, we have this incredible opposition from the outside, but now today we look at it from the inside. An implosion, if you will, only furthering that what we spoke about last week, where the seemingly perfect church is far from it. Just look at the very first word of this chapter. What is the very first word of this chapter? But. All of this wild, wonderful things were going down. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Doesn't that sound familiar? If you guys were here last week, if you know the Bible, doesn't that sound familiar? Joseph called Barnabas, the end of Acts chapter 4, which is really a part of this story. Luke is using it for contrast, our author. 
Barnabas has sold his land for others and for God. But then we have this married couple in the church, in the community, doing a similar, wonderful, generous, volunteer, you know, voluntarily you know, wanting to do this. But there's clearly something wrong. So what's the problem? Look at verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds that brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Still, I don't see a problem. We have a husband and a wife. They Craigslist some of their junk. We don't have an exact amount given. But whatever it was, they keep it for themselves. Still, though, still, we don't have a problem addressed. What are we missing? Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. That's what we're missing. So let's first address the blinding issue of verse 3. That being Satan. Let's talk about Lucifer. Let's talk about the hateful devil. And now this is the first time we see him since the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is Satan's first appearance in the book of Acts. And just so it's said for the record, we are a church who believes in Satan. We believe he is real. We believe he is active and that he is the prince of this world. Now when thinking about Satan and his role or his activity in everyday life, we must remember a couple of things. We need to have a healthy understanding of Satan's power and his character and his tactics. We aren't to think too high of his power and exaggerate it by doing so, deafening God's sovereignty and power. While at the same time, we aren't to think too little of Satan. The Bible is very clear that there's a spiritual war happening. The Bible is very clear Satan is a powerful powerful being. Jesus had this to say about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. These words of Jesus only illuminate that much more the activity of Satan here in Acts chapter 5, right? Satan has lied to who? Adam and Eve, Satan is like to who? Jesus, Satan is like to who? Ananias and Sapphira. And collective church, hear me, Satan will and does lie to you and to me. Each lie different from the other, but each lie slithering towards the same goal. That being to take God's purposes, to take God's words and promises, to take God himself off the throne of your heart, of your mind, of your soul, of your life. One of these days, we will do a a floor talking Satan. But until then, friends, be mindful and please be aware that Satan hates you. Satan hates you. I wish for myself that I would have had a greater realization of that way earlier in my life or in my ministry that Satan hates me. Satan hates you. Satan hates my wife. Satan hates my children. His M.O., is told to us in the Bible that this entire objective, his entire objective is to steal and to kill and to destroy. Lucifer's Twitter bio is steal, kill, and destroy. That's his entire thing. And that's exactly what he got with Ananias and Sapphira. 
Think about this. He somehow fooled them. To lie about keeping the money was far grander than telling the truth and keep the money. Peter wouldn't have cared if they kept a percentage. God wouldn't have cared if they kept a percentage. We don't care if they kept a percentage. Because here's the kicker of the entire text. All of this could have been avoided. All of it. And isn't that true for most of us in retrospect? Remembering our lies and deceit with others, knowing that this all could have been avoided? And our BFF, Peter the man, knows it. And it crushes him. Peter the Apostle has supernatural insight, discernment from the Holy Spirit. It ignites within him, and he gives Ananias the third degree. So you remember, these two are probably more than likely friends, if not at least acquaintances. Look at the machine gun fire questions he just rattles off. Again, why would it remain until? Did it not remain your own? Wasn't that at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart, and again, you have not lied to me or the church? but to God, Ananias. Now, I was thinking as I was reading this, I am an amazing liar. I'm good at it, like really good. I've had a life of becoming awesome at lying. Ask, more poor, ask my poor wife. And I remember telling her today, I go, I don't think you've ever lied to me once. In our whole marriage, I don't think she's ever said one to lie to me. And I was like, but I've lied to you. And she's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was her immediate response. I was like, mm-hmm. So I lie all the time. Does anybody else know that about themselves, that they're really good at lying? Like being really good at sniping or archery? Like, no, I can do it good. I've lied my entire life. I was thinking from fibs to like real deceitful things. I mean, I was the kid that lied and, you know, that I was seven all the way till I was 15 to get cheaper movie tickets. Anybody else lie about that? (laughs) Nobody. I remember I was thinking, I lied. Has anybody else lied about... They're in a conversation and they, somebody says, have you seen this movie or this band? And you're like, yeah. Just to be in the middle of the conversation still. But immediately in your heart, you're like, don't ask me who was in it. Don't ask me my favorite song. Like whatever it is. I remember I even lied on a job resume uh, that I had mad carpenter skills. <laughs> I lasted at that job for like two hours until the first time they told me to measure something. And I was like, I don't know, a foot? Like I, don't, I had no idea. I cannot do carpentry. Again, that's my way. I even remember lying about exams, like telling my teacher that my older sister, who doesn't exist, my older sister's having a baby and I gotta go to the hospital. I must have said that a thousand times. And every time I just bring fake pictures of babies and show the teacher. (laughs) And whatever it was, I'm just getting past it. But we lie to make sure we don't get in trouble. We lie to make sure that we don't get caught or we lie to make sure that we get more or we get less. And the deception is that it's just no biggie. That the deception is just that's no big deal and just it so easily wraps its web around us. But, 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 could it be, hear me out, could it be that the most dangerous sin of all is lying? Profound author and minister uh, Ronald Rollheiser uh, believes so. He says more than anything else, It is lying that corrupts the soul, destroys relationships, and sets itself against light. Lying is darkness and the worst form of it. But it's so hard to view it this way, right? It's so hard to view it this way. 
No news source is scrolling through, or there's nothing on the Today Show about some guy in Michigan caught lying. Like, that just doesn't happen. Evil actions, I mean, we have a list of sin and evil actions constantly in our face of abuse and racism and the taking of the, the, the life of an unborn child to sex trafficking. And when you see a list like that, lying seems like the odd man out. But I believe it's a safe bet that each one of those horrible actions that I just rattled off, most, if not all, started out and are sustained in lying. Author and Bishop M.T. Wright has this to say about lying. Lying is ultimately a way of declaring that we don't like the world the way it is, and we will pretend that it is somehow more the way we want it to be. At that level is a way of saying we don't trust God. We mustn't forget it's deceptively dark, and it's far too accessible, not only on the outside, but even within the walls and the confines of this church, of that church, of this church. I mean, like we see in Acts chapter 5, this is in the church. And it can start out so simply within the church just by, you know, somebody answering the question, how are you? I'm fine. I'm good. I'm great. When actually, even though you're cracking or shattering or upset or need help, and in the confines of the church, lying is so easy. It can start with empty words in our discipleship groups, lying about our actions or our motives or our plans or so on. In the confines of the church, we can lie even as singing a worship song, perhaps, that maybe we aren't surrendering all. May we never forget, collective church, friends, that it's the ninth commandment given to Moses in Exodus 20 in the Old Testament of the Bible. A moral law given for people to live by, to do life by, to honor God by. May we never forget, as we read earlier, that Satan is the father of lies. Not the father of lust a broken sexuality. Satan is not the father of murder. Satan is not the father of violence or evil. Satan is the father of lies. Friends, are there any lies you are currently believing from Satan himself? Are there any lies you are currently spoon-feeding to those around you, maybe even loved ones within your life? And hear me as well, it's not Satan's doing. If we are telling lies, it is not Satan's doing. The devil does not force our arm to say it. He can entice us and he can tempt us and he can influence us. But just like Ananias, Ananias is fully responsible for his own doing. Point is, he could have said no to the devil, just like any one of us can. Ananias has made his decision to push God out of the way and to push his agenda center stage of this entire drama. And as soon as that happens, look at verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. Please, for a moment, can we just imagine this? Can we hop on the magic school bus and just take a ride down Imagination Lane? If you're, again, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, please don't think that we as Christians look at this and go, this is normal. Another day of Christianity. No. This strikes all of us with the injection of discomfort. Just to be present there 
and just standing around. They're clearly in the, pub, in the public. And to witness two men having a conversation over property and then to watch your friend or to watch another believer, to watch a man who was probably well-known in the church fall to the ground and exhale his last. Not to be too graphic, but if you've ever been around those who are stepping out of this world, in most situations with that person, there's a long, forceful exhale. And you know in that moment, that was their last breath. You just know it. It's a horrific sound. Today, Peter and others witnessed that man's long, forceful exhale. And then, which is pretty custom due to the heat, there was an immediate burial. But this only gets heavier. Look at verse 7. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Now, I have no idea how that is even possible. How, how, does, that, how does she not know this? You think somebody would find her? Ooh, Sapphira. Ooh. You think somebody would warn her? She would hear about it? But she doesn't. And she comes in completely blind. Look at verse 8. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Please tell me whether you sold the land for so much. See, now, if you notice, this is her chance. You ever have that moment where you, could, you just know, I could lie? And there's just that something inside of you. He's like, no, just tell the truth. This is a chance to repent, to make it right, to be blameless. And you can almost hear Peter's heart pounding. Come on, Sapphira. Come on, Sapphira. Be real. Be honest. And she says, yes. Yeah, for so much. Verse 9 again. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? How? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. This story has always bothered me. That neither one of them got to say goodbye to each other. This story has always bothered me, not knowing if they had children. This story has always bothered me that it doesn't tell us if Peter wept or frustrated or cried or was upset. The story has always bothered me that we couldn't hear the conversation of the gravediggers. I mean, are they shoveling and saying, what is going on? Or as they come back in exhausted and sweating, like, I don't need to do that for a while. And they watch the fire go dead in front of them. You can almost audibly hear one of the young men go, nah, mm, mm mm-mm. You're kidding me? So for application, so for application for us, as I sat before the Bible this week, what does a Bible teacher make of this? I actually had a few people, I hung out with some people this week, and they said, what are you doing with Sunday's verses? Sucks to be you. Like, what are we supposed to do? Just joking, Jenny and Wally didn't say it. I don't know with them. Is it really don't say a white lie and, you know, or God's going to strike you dead? Amen. See you next week. Like, is that really it? Is that even true? That if anybody here lies or sins, that being to push God away, to push God out of the way, to rebel against him or what he has said, does that mean God will take you? That God will give you your last breath? Is that really what all of this means? Well, the truth is, Yes. Yes, it does. 
God has and could, and that's the honest truth. See, this is a story that introduces us to a different world of thought, which is far different than what we're used to. It is a world in which sin is taken seriously, dead serious. But the obvious, the obvious, not everybody gets struck down. That's the obvious. If that was the case, I would have been out of here 30-ish years ago. I would have been out of here forever ago. So why them? Why this married couple? If all of us have been spared, why this married couple? Why the immediate judgment on Ananias and Sapphira? Because this is a sign, a ringing bell, an archetype, like so much of the book of Acts, of how deadly serious God views sin. And for these two, hypocrisy. See, this married couple wanted glory. They wanted fame. They wanted reputation. They wanted their their backs pat like good old Barney. They wanted to be seen by the church as generous and amazing. They found greater accolades at actually laying uh, the proceeds, the percentage, down at the apostles' feet rather than at God's feet. Is there anyone here today who by chance struggles with that? I know I do and have. My sin, my flesh would love to receive the glory of a sermon or the talk or Casey's generous. Is that true for anybody here today like this married couple? We'd rather look good than be good. We'd rather look generous than be generous. We'd rather look committed than be committed. Wanting to look spiritual, wanting to look a certain way, play a certain part or have a certain image. Jesus spoke about that very thing. His words on the subject go just like this. He goes, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your your, um, left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret shall reward you. For those who do this, including me, it's this manipulation of our reputation rather than the furthering of his reputation. For this husband and wife, wouldn't we all, think about it, for Ananias and Sapphira, wouldn't we all have just been unbelievably relieved if they would have repented? All of us would be so pumped right now. They would have been pumped to just set their ways. Just set your ways, Ananias and Sapphira, according to God's will, ways. But clearly they don't. So God, and rightfully so, handles it. And he brings instantaneous judgment. He desired to remove the sin from the community in short order in order to stop the spreading. Why? For the health of the church. Why? For the health of the church. Why for the health of those in the church? See, if we discuss the hateful devil and the hypocritical Ananias and Sapphira, then we must know it's for the health of the church. See, if God were to walk away from the church and let disease of sin spread and take its course, that is far worse judgment if that happens because it always, 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 always ends in disaster. This is how Jesus handles his bride, the church. This is what he says, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with his word, so that he might present the church to himself in blender without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. So when God, hear me, when God responds to sin with prompt severity, it's not because he's some emo teenager listening to Dashboard Confessional. He's like, oh. (laughs) He's not some little kid out there with a magnifying glass and an anthill. But because God, he is a God who cares far deeper than any any one of us will ever realize about the the good of the church. Because Jesus is a husband to a wife that be in the church. Because Jesus is the head of this body. For what husband, I was thinking, for what husband allows his wife to just bleed out and not take her to the emergency room? You act swiftly. Who in the right mind, if you're having a heart attack, rather than doing nothing about it, you sit there and ignore it. The only way we can be a healthy, multiplying expression of Christ's church in each of the 23 neighborhoods that make up the West Side is to make sure that we allow and desire the spirit of the living God have his way in our midst, even if that means dealing with our rebellion, wrongdoing, sin. We got to get, there is no Acts 2, like we, or Acts 4, like we read last week. There's no Acts 2, like we talked about months ago, about unified community without the God of Acts 5. Now as well, hear me, I am not saying witch hunt. Everybody in collective church, witch hunt and sin hunt. Go around. Are you lying? Are you sinning? God killed them. That's not what I'm encouraging this church to do. Collective church is to be a healthy, if it's to be a healthy church, that means they gently and correctly and lovingly want to see the elimination of the infection in order to be healthy. And for a lot of us, Hear me out. For a lot of us, we can hear all this and go, yeah, hear, hear. Absolutely. But then for a small amount of us, or any of us, we respond rapidly different if it's our sin in that case that needs to be dealt with. And see, we're also not naive. We know as a church and as a community that we'll never be fully removed of sin. Because if that was the case, none of us would be here. None of us. And we know if sin happens, that doesn't mean we can expect lightning bolts to come crashing down from the ceiling. This case in Acts 5 is rare. It is rare. This didn't happen with Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. It did not happen with Pilate, who sentenced Jesus. It did not happen with the, the Corinthian church, which was doing some wicked stuff. And we'll see how it doesn't happen to many, many more people with an ax that we'll encounter. Commentator Daryl Bach wraps it up for us. He says, This judgment indicates, however, how serious sin is to God and how gracious God is in often deferring such judgment. Most sin is not treated so harshly, but at this early stage, such a divine act serves to remind the community of its call to holiness and its loyalty to God. God sees and knows all. Sin is dealt with in the church. And when it's dealt with, What happens to the church as a whole? Look at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. This is the first time our author uses the word church to describe the community of believers. And it's in the context of fear scurrying in our midst, in their midst. Now hear me, this isn't like Freddy Krueger type of fear. This isn't like a shark in the water gonna eat me type of fear. The Bible's definition of fear isn't the same as ours. 
And the only way to understand fear, again, the fuller understanding of life and death and lying and truth and sin and redemption and fear and worship starts with what? A proper study of God. So if one seeks to understand fear, we all must remember that God is holy. It's easy to forget the holiness of God at times. I was reminded radically this week. Far too often he becomes, you know, the big guy upstairs. Far too often God becomes a buddy, a buddy that Morgan Freeman often plays. I mean, that's just who God is too many times. And with that, with that, slips away the rightful mindset that he is Jehovah. He is Jehovah. Have you recently or ever asked yourself, what does it mean to me that God is holy? What does it mean for my life that God is holy? What does it mean for my hypocrisy or my deceit that God is holy? For God to be holy means he is separate. It underscores this whole creator-creature distinction. An underscore tangibly seen in today's verses. Get this, God is beyond reproach. No human eyes have seen him and lived. The book of Exodus asks a question in the Bible. It says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The book of Samuel in the Bible answers it. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Is it fair to say that any swift judgment or most judgments within the Bible that you are holding fall upon those who abuse or foolishly squander God's holiness? If you're familiar with the story of Achan in the Old Testament, a man who robbed God, and insulted his holiness, bringing the entire nation of Israel to defeat. Does anybody remember our friend Yuza, Uzzah, however you want to pronounce it, in the Bible, who became far too familiar or comfortable with God's holiness, who was then radically reminded like Achan and Ananias and Sapphira of God's holiness? See, for God to be holy means he is rightfully separate, majestic, glorious, and beyond reach. He's ethically and morally never drawn into evil or wrongdoing. And yet, just this is a freak out moment, and yet in reread in Acts 5, he is in the midst of them. How is the God of the cosmos, perfection, wonder in the midst of such imperfection? Jesus. Jesus. Only way the gospel, that being the good news of Jesus, has any weight to it is if we realize that it is our holy God who put it into action. It is a holy, separate God who, in his cosmic mercy, grace, and love, moved towards us. See, again, it's a holy God who came for us, not hardworking believers who came to him. He moved towards us. And more than that, all more than that, he binds himself to us, binding himself to Ananias and Sapphira, binding himself in covenantal love, not a contract, but we are bound to him in an unbreakable, unconditional love, all because of what Jesus has done. You want to see where God's holy judgment and binding love meet and intersect? 
friend, look and stare and stand amazed, never grow tired of, be blown away by, wonder and ponder at the cross of Jesus Christ. Only in Christ can God's holiness and fear, hear this, only in Christ can God's holiness and fear be for us a a source of delight rather than terror. For those here tonight who perhaps think that the God of the Bible is one of dread, I believe the cross rips that mindset to shreds. See, all claims of God's character as rash and dreadful and impatient and too harsh, God proved himself how far he was willing to undergo by taking the ultimate punishment in our place, proving far beyond that God is holy and as well God is love. We should be rocked hour by hour and moment by moment at the reality that God would forgive any sin and the brain melt that he'd bear the punishment of death himself in order to bind himself to those undeserving. The creator of life could punish every sin with death and it would be fully justified. May we not be ignorant to who he is and what he can do and what he's allowed to do. May we not be frustrated with God in Acts 5 but forget somehow the God of the entire Bible. We are to be smacked by the deaths of sinners like Ananias and Sapphira so that we are enraptured by the reality that we as sinners have life. So when the church stands in fear, as it should, that means the church stands in awareness of who God is, that he is holy, but then fully aware that he is present because what if Christ has done? See, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is here to bring us to a, a reverent awakening. Is there anyone here tonight who needs to be woken up? who needs to turn their life, their direction towards him? Is there anyone here tonight who needs to stop lying? Is there anyone here tonight who needs to stop believing Satan's lies? Is there anyone here tonight who should remove the mask pretending to be somebody that they are are not? Is there anybody here tonight who has forgotten the holiness of God? Is there anybody here tonight who needs to put their life into his holy, loving hands to believe the gospel, to deny the flesh, to deny the world's advances, to deny the temptations of the devil and be bound in covenantal love with him. Tonight is the night. Let's pray that now for our church.